Oh, praise the Lord. I love that last song. I love a lot of songs, but I love that last song. <laughs> if you would, turn in your Bibles to Psalms 13. The psalmist says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord. O Lord, my God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This morning, as I mentioned in the greeting, we continue in our study of prayer. A few weeks ago, while looking at some of the tools of prayer, I mentioned lamenting. In that context, I looked at it strictly as an event, a moment. And defining it as an event and a moment, the, the basic definition of the word lament, as a noun, it means a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. As a verb, it means simply to mourn. But in actuality, as a tool in prayer, to lament is a process, a beautiful, beautiful process that deserves much more attention as we study prayer. And that's why we're looking at it solely this morning. We have in the Bible, we have the book of Lamentations, which follows some of the same principles that we'll look at as we look at this psalm this morning and a few other psalms. Nearly one-third of the psalms are psalms of lament, prayers of lament. Now, there are two types of lament psalms. There are community and individual. As a community, as this body, as a group of believers to any degree, as a community binding together by faith, we can lament the state of the world and the things we see in popular entertainment and news, is, is, there's a lot to lament. We can lament our country, or we can even lament the state of the church. And you look at some of the denominations, some of the congregations, and what they are dismissing, what they are claiming is not sin, and the grief that you know that is bringing the Lord and the turmoil that is bringing the individuals who are being sold those lies. Psalms 12 is an example of a community lament, if you want to look at it sometime. And there are other community laments. About, I think it was about 18 of the over 50 laments in Psalms are community laments. Our psalm this morning, Psalms 13, is an individual lament. As an individual, we can lament our health our finances, our relationships with others. We can lament and do lament the loss of a loved one. 
Our struggles are many. The list can go on and on. A successful lament starts with grief and mourning. A, a lament as God has designed it, as God has gifted it to us, starts with grief and mourning, but ends with trust and gratitude. A lament can be described in four basic steps. First of all, in your notes, you see turn, and you could finish that with turn to God. Then we have complain to God again. And then we have ask God. And finally, trust God. We're going to look at those four points as we break down this psalm this morning and, and as we look at the power and the beauty and the gift of lament. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of lament. We thank you for your spirit to reveal this to us this morning and guide us through this and understand the tool that it is, the gift that it is, the power that we have in lamenting that you give us to, to grow, to mature, to set our hearts, to set our minds on you, Father. May your spirit guide us this morning, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. As I've alluded to already this morning and as I have been as I reflect over the past few months, I have really been speaking a lot about the doctrine of suffering. It's because I think it's important for us to have that healthy perspective of the doctrine of suffering and the things we face in this fallen world. But life does, in fact, bring us all manner of hardships, all types of suffering. We live in a fallen world. We live in a sinful world. We live in a world that is the domain of the enemy of God. A world that is filled with suffering. That reality separated us from God. Jesus lived, died, and was resurrected to restore our relationship with God to overcome the fallenness of this world, to bring us hope for eternity. Once we turn to God initially, when we, have, when we come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, by looking to Christ and Christ alone for salvation, we then have an open means of communication with God. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. Paul says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. That doesn't mean we don't grieve as believers, but it means we don't grieve as others do who have no hope because we have hope. Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have hope. And if we don't put our faith and our trust in that, then we still don't embrace or, or know or receive that hope. The lament process begins by turning to God. Verse 1 of our, of our psalm this morning. The psalmist starts out, How long, O Lord? He's crying out to God, How long, O Lord? It opens with a direct appeal to God. This is the essential key to lament. It is the foundation of lamenting our circumstances. Psalms 44 verse 1 opens with, O God, 
Psalms 22, 1 opens with, My God, my God. You go to the various laments and they are all crying out to God. That's where they start. They turn to God. When we are in the middle of suffering, this appeal is messy. We have to understand that. We have to embrace that. It is messy. God does not require us to be all calm and collected, all prim and proper when we come to him in the midst of our grief, in the midst of our suffering. He understands that it hurts. He walked this earth. He shed tears for Lazarus, knowing that he was going to bring him to life. He does not expect us to come to him saying, God, God, this is bad. This is hard. I know you have it. I'm just going to be strong. No, that's not what he expects. He knows that it's hard. He knows that we are going to grieve the reality of the fallenness of this world. He created us as emotional beings. He gave us the gift of emotion. Emotions can be beautiful when embraced in the reality of the hope of Christ. They give us vibrancy. They give us personality. They give us uniqueness. They testify to the glory of our Creator in displaying who we are as individuals. They can be hard to handle for us and for those who come in contact with us. Some are more emotional than others. Another part of our uniqueness. I don't know about you, but I have much more, much more patience with my emotions than I have with everyone else's emotions. I understand my emotions, for the most part, much better than I do others. Parents in the room, you don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you sometimes are just over your kids' drama? They think the world has ended if they can't get candy. They think the world has ended if their friend didn't say hi to them in the right way. Emotions are real. Imagine if God had that attitude with us. How many times do we act like children with our emotions? Because our emotions are strong. Our emotions are real. But God doesn't get weary of us. He doesn't dismiss us. He doesn't wait for us to get over our emotions and then come to him with our appeals. He invites us to come to him in the midst of our emotions. Along with understanding our emotions, God does not expect us to have all the correct theological terminology when we come to him in prayer. He doesn't expect us to know all of the ins and outs and all of the specifics of theology to come to him in the midst of our pain. He invites us to come as we are. Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What does this coming to look like? How do we come to Jesus? How do we come to God? Continuing on in the first two verses of Psalms 13, the psalmist continues, he says, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul 
and have sorrow in my heart all the day. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? These two verses, there's a lot there. These two verses can be described in several different ways. One simple way to describe them in one word is a complaint. The psalmist is complaining to God. He's complaining about his circumstances, about his situation, and God's apparent indifference to it. He's basically saying, God, do you have any idea what's going on down here? Do you know how I feel? Do you know what this is doing to me? Do you know that it looks like my enemy's got an upper hand on me, and I know they're not right, and he's, he's just he's laying it out to God, and he's saying, this just isn't right, God. Where are you? What's going on? He's complaining, and God's listening. His main question is, how long? God, this has been a long time. How long, how long is this going to continue, God? He is over it, to use a term we like to use in modern vernacular. He is over it. He says, will you forget me forever? Again, how long will you hide your face from me? Where are you, God? He doesn't think that God is paying any attention to his situation. He thinks that God has completely forgotten about him. At least that's what he's complaining about. He says, how long must I take counsel on my soul? What does he mean by that? And have sorrow in my heart all the day. The NIV translation of this verse says, How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? You're not helping me, God, so how long do I have to deal with these thoughts? And every day have sorrow in my heart. The message paraphrase says, Long enough I've carried this ton of trouble, lived with a stomach full of pain. Do any of these words... These translations, these paraphrases of these, of these verses, do any of these ring true with you? Do you, in the midst of your struggles, in the midst of your, whether it's cancer, whether it's relationships, whether it's finances, do you feel forsaken? Do you think that God doesn't care? Do you agonize? Are you rolling over in your mind? How am I going to deal with this? How am I going to overcome this? Are you losing sleep over it? Are you battling with it in your heart, in your mind? Scripture is rich with physical analogies. God does it. If he doesn't do it for anybody else, he does it for my simple little mind to relate spiritual things to physical realities. Our emotions affect us physically. Some people eat when they're stressed. When they get stressed out, they just eat and they eat and they eat. I'm the opposite. When I get stressed... I lose my appetite. Those are physical responses, physical reactions to spiritual realities. These realities are not coincidental. God is intentional with all of this. He is trying to get our attention. He's trying to get us to focus on him. We'll talk a little bit more about that with fasting next week. But the physical is a tool that God uses to teach us the spiritual, to bring us to a reality of the spiritual. He is trying to get our attention with all of life. Why? One reason. Because he loves us absolutely, unconditionally. This isn't some 
chess game that he's up in heaven moving pawns around just to see what happens. Every move he makes in the physical is to point us to him, to bring us to the point where we surrender our lives to him first for salvation, then for sanctification as we grow in understanding obedience and how to love and walk with him to bring others into the kingdom. It is everything intentional. Physical, everything physical in this life, God uses to point everyone to him. Life is hard. God does not want us to deny that. He does not want us to ignore that. He wants us to bring our hardships to him, to lay them at his feet. The psalmist's final complaint is how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? I venture to say that we've all experienced that. Comparing our situations to others. Not understanding why evil appears to prevail. Why, God? Why does this person, I know their life. I know what they're doing. I know what they did to me and they're getting away with it. Why, God? It doesn't seem fair. It isn't fair. Jesus allowed his enemies to murder him. That wasn't fair, but it was absolutely necessary to save his creation, to make a path for us for salvation, to come into eternal fellowship with the creator of the universe. Life isn't fair. Life is an opportunity to come into that relationship with God. Notice in the complaint portion of the psalm, the psalmist is not complaining to his friends. He's not ranting on social media. He's not blaming other people for his circumstances. Yeah, he's a little miffed that his enemies are, are getting the upper hand on him, but he's still not blaming them. He's going to God and saying, God, why? God, this is what's going on. Why? Do you see this? Do you know this? Are you even listening, God? He is complaining to God. God understands this. God invites this. He gives several examples of it in Scripture. Notice that the author doesn't stay in complaint mode very long. This is a very brief psalm. And there are others that get much more in detail, and the list is a little longer. But they all follow the same basic path. And that path is now to go from complaint to ask. Starting in verse 3, the psalmist says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. He is appealing to God. He says, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. He's still complaining. He's still telling God, this, this just isn't right. What's going on, God? He is concerned about his physical life, saying, open my eyes. He mentions the perspective of his enemies again, twice. But he's asking. God wants us to ask him because he knows that we need him. And he wants us to come to that realization 
He wants us to decide to follow him, to obey him, to trust him. It's not really about the question itself. It's about the turning of the heart. Satan wants us to put our faith in anything but God. He is not partial, as long as it's something other than God. Satan's perfectly fine with that. James chapter 4, starting at verse 2. James writes, You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. It's about the heart. That's what God is longing to change is our hearts, for our, us to surrender our wills to invite him to change our hearts. In verse 5, the psalmist pivot, pivots, and he pivots very hard. Verse 5, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. He said, but I have trusted. It's done, God. I trust you. Yeah, I laid out all these complaints. These are the emotions I've been struggling with, but I have trusted. And despite my current circumstances, my heart shall rejoice in your eternal salvation. When I spoke of lament a few weeks ago, I said that there is a danger of getting stuck in lament. There is a danger of getting bogged down and buried in our emotions. People do get stuck in grief and mourning. It's not something that we can will ourselves out of, that we can lift ourselves out of. That's the reality. Without God, we would have no way out of grief. If all we had to rely on was this world, what this world has to offer, in physical provisions, in relationships, we would be in deep despair. People fail people. I fail people that I love dearly because I'm human. If all we had to depend on was this world, we would have no hope. When we truly turn to God in our grief, the pivot in our thinking will follow. The trust will follow. We will turn from grief to gratitude. But when the pivot in our thinking doesn't come, when we find ourselves buried in sorrow, feeling like we have no hope, throwing darts at whatever it will stick, blaming whoever we can blame, wallowing in our self-pity, when we find ourselves in that, we need to go back to step one. Psalms 130, first two verses are called a worship text this morning. Another lament, it says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. We need to confess our lack of faith in God recognize what we are putting our faith in instead of God and turn again to God and go through the complaining all over again. That's the process of lament. We truly turn to God. 
We lay out our pains. We lay out our sorrows to him. We don't try to pull anyone else down with us. We don't try to blame other people. We repent of, we own our sins. We tell God how bad we are feeling and the struggles we are having. We talk solely to him. When we do that, when we surrender to to him, the pivot will come. He will do it. It won't be us doing it. This reset can come to us in several ways. This stepping back again and, and am I really turning to God or am I trying to get more people to agree with me? Or am I trying to get more people on my side? Am I trying to hide my sins? This true turning to God will come. We may realize it ourselves. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit is, re- is faithful in reminding us of our need for God. John chapter 16, verse 13. It says, when the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. The Holy Spirit is calling each of us. The Holy Spirit is telling us everything we need to know to turn to God, but our sinfulness gets in the way, our selfishness, our pride gets in the way. And when we ignore those promptings in our sinfulness, God will lovingly bring circumstances to bring us to the end of ourselves. He will use this physical world to bring us to the end of ourselves because he loves us that much. We studied Jonah last fall. You look at the life of Jonah and the circumstances that God brought. Have you ever prayed the prayer for someone else? God, do whatever it takes to get their attention. He will do it. They still have a responsibility. We still have a responsibility to turn, to trust him, to look to him completely. In the midst of our circumstances, God will also bring us brothers and sisters in the faith to help us, to walk with us, to guide us, to carry us, we have a choice, again, to embrace them or to ignore them. This does not mean that the circumstances that brought us to lament will go away. But when we turn to God, He will see us through our circumstances. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 17. The writer of Proverbs says, I love those who love me. And those who seek me diligently find me. That is a promise. When we are seeking after him, we will find him. We can do things to help prepare ourselves. And we are called to exercise these disciplines. We are to pray. Not only to pray through our circumstances, but to pray for God's Revelation, to pray for God's provision, to pray for our hearts to be soft, to pray for our minds to be open, to pray for our spirits to be fertile ground for God's spirit to relate to. 
We have direct access to God through the gift of prayer. That is our opportunity to commune and fellowship with God. We also have the opportunity to read our Bibles. God gave us his complete revelation in the Holy Spirit-inspired text of the Bible. Starting from creation to the final prophecies of revelation to tell us how this world began and how this world will end and our opportunity to cross into eternity with him and how Christ is woven throughout all of those 66 books. We have that text to cherish, again, to prepare our hearts for when the suffering does come. The promises and the examples of the faithful and the unfaithful and the result of their actions throughout, text, throughout the text of the Bible are a gift to us. We have the opportunity also to pray, to read our Bibles, to study our Bibles. We have the opportunity also to surround ourselves with faithful individuals, people who are chasing after God. Not perfect people. There's no perfect people. The only perfect person who ever walked the earth was Jesus. But we have an opportunity to challenge ourselves. You guys have heard me say this many times too. I, in my physical blindness, God has given me desire to find people who are doing blind better than I am. In our Christian faith, our desire should be to surround ourselves with people who are doing a fa the faithful walk better than we are. To lift us up, to challenge us, to point us to God. Not to surround ourselves with people who make us feel better about where we are and make us stagnant. People who are distracted by the world. So we, we surround ourselves with a, with a circle of people who don't push us, who don't encourage us, who don't challenge us to grow in our faith. We can have the tendency to surround ourselves with people who would just let us just sit in who we are and, and be comfortable in that. I challenge you not to do that this morning. Surround yourself with people. Have coffee with people. Go to Bible studies with people. Quit your job and get a job somewhere else surrounded with people who will lift you up and challenge you in your faith to grow in obedience, to grow in trust. That's an amazing tool that we have. Get yourself, get your kids to church to be a part of the body for accountability, for teaching, for walking together. Do not forsake the gathering together. Yesterday in our Stand Firm men's group, the, the study was on the, the discipline of church, the importance of the church body. No, coming to church is not going to save you. But being part of a church family is going to empower you. It is going to help you. It is commanded of you. And, it and the reason it's commanded of you is because it is a beautiful gift to us. When we utilize all of these tools, when life gets hard, we will be more apt to turn first to God, to turn to what we know of God, to bring our complaints to him. We're still going to be emotional. We're still going to have complaints because life is hard. But when we have this foundation of prayer and study and fellowship with believers, then off of that foundation, when we hit our walls, when we have our struggles, our suffering, our frustrations, then we're going to go to God and ask God why. 
And we're not going to be divisive and try to get people on our team and, and try to justify what we're doing, the way we're feeling. We're going to go to God and say, God, why? God, how? God, where are you? That's what he wants us to do. And then when we truly turn to him and trust him, he will cause our hearts to pivot to him supernaturally. That's the way it works. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. We're used to just kind of dipping our toe in and getting just enough to get what we think we want. When it comes to the Christian walk, God wants us to seek him with all our heart. He wants us all in because he knows he has what's best for us. And by just giving a little, just giving enough to relieve the pressure, we're cheating ourselves. We're dishonoring God. We're being selfish. But God wants us to be all in. He wants us to seek him with all our hearts. Verse 6, final verse of Psalms 13. He says, I will sing to the Lord. Because he has dealt bountifully with me. In the midst of his sorrow, the psalmist recognizes what God has done for him. We don't know what the psalmist's struggles are, were. We know he was in pretty deep despair. But in the midst of that, he turned fully to God and God turned his heart. Did his circumstances change? It doesn't say that. But his attitude toward them did. Our struggles are real. God wants us to bring them to him. He wants us to ask him. He wants us to trust him. He wants us to rejoice in him. Because he knows that our only hope is in him. And he paid the ultimate price for that hope. With the life, death, and resurrection of his perfect son. Lamenting doesn't change us. It points us to the one who does. That is the power of the process of lamenting. To truly turn to, to look to, to invite the power of the Holy Spirit, the grace of God to change us, to provide for us, to carry us to the midst of our deepest struggles and deepest hardships. I pray this morning you know the gift of trusting and following God. I pray that you understand the power of lament. I pray that you understand that lament is an opportunity to show us when we are not turned to God. When we get into grief and we're bogged down and we're pitying ourselves and we're blaming others, we haven't turned to God. And God's saying, no, turn to me. And then we come back and we say, God, this hurts. God, this is what's going on. God, why? God, where are you? God, help me. And then by his spirit, supernaturally, he will pivot our hearts. He will show us how to trust him. He will give us the power to trust him. And the beautiful gift that that is. 
And then we can sing the song, we know it's not much, but I'll praise you again and again. We can sing that song of gratitude. Not because of anything we've done, not because of how great we are, but because of everything that God has done. I pray this morning that you understand that reality of lament, that reality of turning to God, to giving our cares and our worries to God, to asking Him to provide, to carry us through, to trusting Him, and to rejoicing in Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You, Lord, for that gift. Thank You, first, for the ability to trust You, the ability to turn to You, Lord, the power that you gave us by your grace and the life, death, and resurrection of your Son, God, if not for that, we would be destroyed in the reality of our grief and the reality of our circumstances. This fallen world would crush us if not for you. God, may we truly know what it means to turn to you, to come to you, to ask you, to trust you. And may we worship you out of a genuine heart of love and appreciation, and realizing who you are, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.